Welcome to Chiropractic Science, where you get to hear interviews with leading chiropractic researchers from around the world. Hear about chiropractic research from the authors in plain English, not through the media, nor a middleman. My name is Dr. Dean Smith, and I am the host of Chiropractic Science. I'm an associate clinical professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Health at Miami University, and I'm also a chiropractor in Eaton, Ohio. My research interests relate to understanding how chiropractic affects motor control and human performance. Today, I have the privilege of interviewing Dr. Kevin Hustler. But before we get to the interview, I wanted to thank all of you who have subscribed to Chiropractic Science, and I'm especially appreciative to all of you who have contributed five-star reviews on iTunes. iTunes really helps others find out about chiropractic science. So if you like the show, please take a second and write a review. It will support chiropractors everywhere. Dr. Rich Manley wrote a review and says, Excellent podcast. Thanks, Dr. Dean, for continually providing informative and interesting content with lots of doctors doing important research. You're doing the chiropractic profession a great service. Well, thank you, Dr. Manley, for your feedback and review. And I look forward to sharing your iTunes review in a future podcast. Well, it's now the new year. And the 2020 update of the Chiropractic Science Slides presentation is available to educate your patients and your community about the benefits of chiropractic care. The slides are currently on sale, but as a bonus for listeners of this podcast, you can take an extra $25 off by entering the code PODCAST25 at checkout. There are now over 365 slides in the presentation. Each slide includes a short evidence-based message from the scientific literature, along with the reference and a picture. In addition, you can customize the slides to your clinic. For more information and for slide reviews, check out our website at chiropracticscience.com. All right, on to the podcast. Well, let's get on to the interview with Dr. Kevin Hausler. Dr. Hausler graduated from the Ohio State University College of Veterinary Medicine in 1988 and completed a small animal internship in Sacramento, California. To further his training in the conservative management of spinal-related disorders, he pursued human training at Palmer College of Chiropractic West and completed a veterinary chiropractic certification program in 1993. He attended the University of California, Davis to to attain a PhD focusing on spinal pathology and pelvic biomechanics in thoroughbred racehorses. Postdoctorate training involved evaluation of in vivo spinal kinematics in horses at Cornell University. While at Cornell, he directed the newly formed Integrated Medicine Service, which provided chiropractic, acupuncture, and physical therapy services to both small and large animals. Currently, he is an associate professor at the Orthopedic Research Center at Colorado State University and is involved in teaching clinical duties and research into the objective assessment of musculoskeletal pain, spinal dysfunction, and the application of physical therapy and rehabilitation. Dr. Hausler is a charter member of the American College of Veterinary Sports Medicine and Rehabilitation and is currently a course instructor for the Equine Rehabilitation Certification course co-branded by the University of Tennessee and Colorado State University. Dr. Hausler, thanks so much for coming on the Chiropractic Science Podcast. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Smith. I appreciate the offer to be able to come and join and share some information with you today. Oh, that's great. And uh, I've wanted to have you on for so long, and I've got a lot of questions. Uh, we'll try to get through as many as we can. Uh, okay. But but first, um, I always like to ask my guests uh, if if we can start by telling how you became interested in, in your case, first becoming a veterinarian and then become a, becoming a chiropractor. Okay. Yeah. Well, I guess I um, have always had an interest in um, helping animals and um, just going through high school and trying to develop where I was going to do, you know, with my career, I found out that I really was interested in veterinary medicine. Unfortunately, with a lot of hard work and dedication, I was able to successfully complete that education. Um, from there, I got into a small animal internship program. And through that training, I learned that I didn't want to do general practice for the rest of my life, but really wanted to specialize in the area in veterinary medicine. And then just from my personal experiences, you know, in high school with athletic competition, I was exposed to human chiropractic and 
was impressed with its ability to help diagnose and treat, you know, subtle muscle weaknesses or performance issues that I had. And then it also been exposed to veterinary acupuncture um, and some of the diagnostic or unique treatment capabilities that that had extended beyond the typical medical approaches of using, you know, medications or surgery to help address injuries or diseases in animals. So after that, then I explored a four-year human educational program, um, looking at human acupuncture, chiropractic school, physical therapy school, try to figure out which one of those best fit my needs. And after a little bit of investigation, talking to some people in the field, decided to pursue the human chiropractic training as kind of my first step and looking at further education. I kind of consider it my residency training program. Well, that's terrific. So were you, so you were in practice for a little while then as a, a general vet and, and then you pursued chiropractic training after that? Yeah, I was in a small animal internship. So that's where we just did general medicine and surgery. So that was all private practice. Um, also, um, during my human chiropractic training, just to help pay the bills and pay for tuition, I did lots of relief work um, where I worked at um, small animal veterinary clinics or emergency clinics doing overnight duty or worked at the local humane society doing spay and neuter type things. So, yeah, I had um, quite a bit of experience as far as diagnosis and treatment, you know, from the veterinary perspective. But I was looking for other tools to put in my tool bag and chiropractic seemed to be the best one for me to add. Oh, that's fantastic and and really fascinating stuff. So from there, after you got your chiropractic degree, what was it that led you to want to pursue a PhD? Well, as I was always interested going through the human chiropractic education, I was always interested in the research to really understand how chiropractic worked or how um, it integrated with other types of modalities. And so I was always kind of hungry for knowledge from doing that. Um, and once I graduated and got out of chiropractic school, um, I started to do private practice where I um, worked on animals, dogs and cats, mostly horses, um, to do that. And, but unfortunately, well, or fortunately, I guess, I was um, challenged about, well, how is it possible to treat a horse, you know, that big of a size and have any meaningful effects? Um, chiropractic in animals was not very well accepted at that time. And so... I was, you know, searching again for more knowledge or information to help me become a better practitioner. And so I was challenged about, well, where's the research to do that? And so from there, then I looked into a couple of different programs and um, was fortunately able to find a program at uh, UC Davis and be able to look into doing some research in that area. Uh, I guess the frustrating thing was, or um, maybe the naivety of me was, is that when I started that PhD program, um, I wanted to prove that chiropractic worked in horses, and that's a pretty tall order to do that. And my advisor at that time, she just wisely asked me, you know, basic questions like, well, what do you know about the equine back? And I said, well, I don't know much at all about it, you know, other than what I read in anatomy books or, you know, limited textbooks or journal articles on back pain diagnosis or treatment at that time. So didn't really know much, so I really had to kind of go back to the basics and um, studied spinal anatomy and the horse's. Um, joints and the muscles that were involved with that, some of the biomechanics and then the pathology. So it was part of my PhD training from that. And from there, I really understood a lot more about kind of the workings of the back, but I still hadn't made any progress at all about exploring how chiropractic really worked in horses as far as trying to treat pain or stiffness or issues with poor performance. So from there, I was able to fortunately go on and pursue postdoctorate training at Cornell and where I was able to really begin some work as far as understanding equine spinal biomechanics. We really did explore some of the mechanical effects of chiropractic care and some of the nociceptive or pain effects of chiropractic care in horses and objectively measure those things. And so from there, we were also, um, as you said earlier in the introduction, able to do the integrative medicine service offering those clinical services to animals and help out with that. And so kind of a combination of applying the clinical work and the research work together um, was, you know, very useful in my program or my development at that time. That's terrific. And 
I, I really want to uh, just piggyback on one of the things you said, which was, you know, you mentioned that you wanted to, to prove chiropractic in, in, in horses and, and the effectiveness and whatnot. And I think a lot of us get into research because we have similar aims and then we get the realization of, wow, there's a, <laughs> there's a lot that goes into this. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> it's more of a lifelong career rather than just a, you know, a three or four PhD, you know, three or four year PhD event. So yeah, again, kind of my naivety with that. So well, all of our, that's the all of ours. <laughs> yeah. The interesting thing about research is that, you know, you go in and try to answer one or two questions and you wind up that you got about 10 or 20 more questions on the back end of it. And so it's a perpetual thing to keep you busy that way. Perfect. Yeah. So Kevin, you're a research leader in veterinary chiropractic care. Uh, particularly for horses, as you mentioned, and you've been published in top journals such as PLOS One, Veterinary Surgery, Veterinary Clinics of North America, Veterinary Journal, and the Journal of Orthopedic Research, just to name a few of them. Um, in order to get through some of your expertise, uh, I figured we could talk about four main themes, uh, one being how chiropractic techniques can be applied to horses, two, how do we know or how do you know, how does anybody know, I guess, uh, how we're making a difference and uh, effects of mobilization versus manipulation in horses. And, and finally, uh, we can talk about some controlled clinical trials in horses with uh, back pain, acute versus chronic back pain. So let's uh, get started with the theme one. And I think this will actually get through uh, uh, quite a few um uh, comments and questions that I initially uh, had for you when I was thinking about you as coming on and being a guest, and that would be, well, how how chiropractic techniques can be applied to horses? Could you give us an overview of this theme, perhaps, and summarize some of the different ways chiropractic could be applied to horses? Yeah, well, I guess I would like to kind of start out with a little bit of definition, and I my perception is that um, some practitioners have a pretty narrow view of what chiropractic is and what it has to offer. Um, you know, there's kind of the straight versus the mixer argument, which has been going on for you know, over a century and hasn't really helped us move too far, far forward as far as um, the profession. And I guess my per perception or what I've learned is that chiropractic is really kind of one aspect of what the umbrella of what I consider manual therapies. And that includes a broad spectrum of different types of therapies we use with our hands as far as for diagnosis and treatment purposes. So on one end of that spectrum would be more touch therapies where there's little or no hand contact um, with the patient to the other end of where I would describe chiropractic as far as where we're applying high velocity, low amplitude thrust to move deep articular tissues to induce some sort of therapeutic effect with that. Then in between those extremes are massage therapy, stretching, passive stretching, soft tissue mobilization, and joint mobilization. And I think as far as, you know, all of these type of therapies, none of these have been developed primarily in animals or in horses. They've all been de developed in humans. And from there, the people have, you know, reported, well, massage feels good for me. What would it feel good for my dog or my cat or my horse? And so these things have been borrowed and brought over into the veterinary profession because of that. And I think that we need to kind of be a little bit critical anytime when we talk about translational medicine. Um, using things that have been shown to be effective in people and then saying, well, those are effective in horses or, you know, the flip side is, well, this drug or whatever works in mice, therefore it's effective in humans. And um, I think we always need to be a little bit critical about that. So um, I think those are some of the things um, that we need to think about from a chiropractic perspective. I think the other um, controversy or comment or challenge that I was always presented with is, well, how in the world can uh, you know, 110 pound little human chiropractor um, treat this 1500 or 2000 pound horse. And, um, you know, there's obviously a challenge with the, just the physicality of doing that. And so we had to do a little bit of research to understand, you know, can we really move a horse's back? And um, we'll talk a little bit about that as we go on here. But yes, we can do that as long as you get your patient to relax for you and you're only treating one or two vertebral segments at a time versus the whole patient. So I think that those are things that we need to think about. I guess the other thing I guess that I was um, a little surprised about going through my chiropractic, just on rec you know, my chiropractic education, just kind of on um, retrospective reflection here is that 
I was going through chiropractic school, um, really only taught high velocity, low amplitude thrusts as, you know, and kind of said, well, these are the best or the most effective for treating neck or back or pelvic pain or whatever that. And there was really little regard given to soft tissue mobilization or maybe some of the other things like stretching or things like that. And I understand that being from a chiropractic school, but really kind of looking more for a global perspective as far as how we can help our patients. And fortunately, I have been able to work with some pretty amazing equine massage therapists or Feldenkrais practitioners or other people using Alexander techniques, which focus a little bit more on body movement patterns and things like that. So it really did open my mind to a wide variety and of the different, very diverse methods that are out there to address kind of more neuromuscular articular disorders in both human and veterinary patients. So so a long answer to your question, and I guess I just have a very broad, open perspective as far as what chiropractic is and what it has to offer to animals in general. That's great. Uh, I really appreciate the the longer answer, actually, because it, it really helps, I think, to understand uh, the nuts and bolts of where you're coming from and, and the different types of care that one, uh, you know, a horse might receive uh, if they uh, get care from a chiropractor or from a vet also that does uh, hands-on um, type of work, whether it be massage or whether it be chiropractic type of techniques. Um, so I want to go a little bit further on that um, because, you know, I, I've got a lot of friends who um, take their horses to um, chiropractors or to vets with uh, specialization doing mm-hmm. these types of techniques. And, and I hear different things from almost everyone about how the horse is treated. And, and of course, you could say the same thing for human chiropractors as well. You know, some use yeah. instruments, some, some use their hands. Um, I'm just curious what, uh, what your take is on, you know, sometimes I see little mallets being used or larger mallets, um, activators, hands-on. Mm-hmm. Can they all work? Um, and what's the research at this point um, showing us about some of these different tools? Yeah. Well, I guess as far as the short answer is, is um, yes, they all do work. Um, I guess it just depends on what your definition of work is as far as being effective. But from human research saying activators are effective for um, producing clinical responses using your hands or that way, um, other mechanical devices, um, you can do those type of things. And so we have um, explored some of that. We have one um, project that we use the activator um, to treat the horses, and we um, seem to have similar clinical effects as far as using our hands. My preference is always to use my hands because that um, gives me more of a direct connection to the patient, but um, there are some horses um, or some dogs that do respond better to the activator, or I can't touch them, and I need to get a little bit more of that proprioceptive or nociceptive stimulation um, to kind of quiet their nervous system um, before I can go ahead and maybe do a little bit of mobilization that way too. So um, again, I like to have lots of tools in my tool bag and pull whichever one out works for that individual patient. And um, sometimes that's an activator and sometimes it's stretching. Sometimes it's acupuncture or or laser therapy or or sometimes or oftentimes in my case, it's chiropractic combined with some of those other things. Oh, that's great. And uh, yeah, very, very good. Very good. Uh, So you said that you have a preference for your hands. What, Mm -hmm. uh, what, research has been done on horses have have they used primarily hands or uh, you mentioned one study where you compared uh, mechanical instrument versus hands um, have most of the studies been done using hands or yeah i think that that's probably more of the high velocity low amplitude thrust is what we're talking about more of the chiropractic or the spinal manipulation type of forces that we're doing with that and so um, the literature that's out there um, those are mostly what's been described. Um, I know that there are a few practitioners coming out of Europe using McTimony techniques, and I always try to stay away from kind of brand name things because it really doesn't help me understand really what it is as far as, you know, technique-driven names to do that. So, again, I kind of fall back on, is this more of a soft tissue mobilization technique? Is it more of a joint mobilization technique? Or are we talking more about a high velocity, low amplitude type of technique. And those things I can understand and wrap my brain around a little bit that way better. Yeah, it makes sense. 
So before we discuss some of the uh, some of the other articles, mm-hmm. I, I do want to ask you about what kind of training does a veterinarian or a chiropractor need in in order to do animal chiropractic? Yeah, well, there are um, currently about five or six postgraduate training or certification programs in the U.S. right now that provide um, education for veterinary chiropractic techniques. All of these courses offer a combination of didactic lecture-based learning and then also practical or hands-on training in chiropractic techniques, and they're mostly focused on dogs and horses to do that. Um, And so I've been teaching or contributing to a course over in the Netherlands for about the last 20 years to do that. Um, And I've been um, impressed with a lot of the um, manual therapists that are coming from the human side as far as having some of those techniques and skills. Um, Sometimes it's challenging to um, really teach veterinarians how to palpate or um, do more of the spinal evaluation. And I guess I can just rely back on or reflect back on my um, experience going to the human chiropractic school is, you know, I was what I called myself a successful small animal practitioner where I could really feel thickened bowel and dogs or cats or, you know, feel little lumps or bumps on their skin. So I felt like I really had a good um, psychomotor or, or palpatory skills with that. But I just remember the first year of chiropractic school going through labs, they would, you know, do have us doing motion palpation or mobilization and the lecture of the um, instructors would say, well, do you feel this? Do you feel this? And I'm standing there. No, I don't feel this. And so <laughs> it took me, it took me about a good six or nine months before I could tell the difference between a, a mild stiffness versus a severe stiffness. And it was a pretty humbling experience that way too. So so, no, I think that there's educational programs out there. Most of these are probably around 200-hour courses, um, which is a far cry from the 8,000 hours or so that you put into a four-year training program, you know, going through veterinary school or chiropractic school. So, um, obviously, it's a, a brief introduction to that. And so, people obviously need to, if that's something that a tool that they want in their tool bag, then obviously they need to learn how to use that tool and keep practicing or get further education with that. But the, the certification programs are out there, and that's probably the, the best mechanism right now for people that are interested to get involved with that. Okay, great. Thank you. And any tips on where to find a good referral for uh, animal chiropractor or animal uh, uh, a veterinary chiropractor? Yeah, well, that's always a good question. I haven't been able to come up with any good tips for that, unfortunately. Um, just because there's such a wide variety, as you mentioned in your introduction, as far as different practitioners' approaches, the different tools they use, um, their treatment protocols that they come up with. Um, the only thing that I can really recommend is to um, get a consult with somebody that you're interested in seeing and seeing if they really are good with animals or not. If they're a good horse person or a good dog handler, then that's always the first step because you don't want um, to go someplace where your dog is going to bite somebody or your horse is going to be kicked or, or hurt somehow because they're, you know, being mishandled or not handled well and they get away from the person. Um, if they, if the practitioner can meet that basic requirement and you feel comfortable with them handling your pet or your horse, then I would um, ask them if they, you know, what their treatment approach is for uh, their, for what do they see mostly, you know, do they mostly see geriatric dogs or they mostly see performance, you know, hunter jumper horses, something like that, and ask them what their success is with that. And then I would go ahead and just have them evaluate my horse or my dog to do that and watch them and see how they approach things to do that. And I guess my general rule of thumb is if it looks like something that you would like done to yourself, then I would say it's probably safe or okay for them to go ahead and treat your pet or to treat your horse. But Unfortunately, that's about the best recommendation that I can provide because there is quite a bit of variability out there in people's skills and um, knowledge base. Yeah, very good. Very good. Well, let's transition to theme two. And this theme is talking about how do you know you're making a difference? And so here we can talk about some objective outcome measures. And I'd, I'd like for you to give us some ideas of how you might know you're making a difference with a horse especially since obviously they can't verbalize their pain or experiences. And, and I think uh, in the past uh, we've both found it difficult uh, to elicit these things from humans. So perhaps in horses uh, it adds an even, you know, extra component to that. Yeah. 
Well, I would say it adds an extra component, but um, if you're skilled to that, I think that it um, makes your life a lot easier too, because I think animals are really truest in their perceptions of you and your applied treatments. Um, humans carry a lot of baggage with them, either you know, socioeconomic or ergonomic challenges, carrying your billfold around your pocket or sitting at a computer all day or emotional baggage with that. And oftentimes that kind of gets in the way of you assessing um, or providing a you know clear diagnosis or applying effective treatment with that. And animals in general have a limited bias or placebo effects with that. So if you are making a difference, they're going to tell you that or they're going to show you that. And if you're not, or if you're hurting them, then they're going to be pretty clear either by getting bit or kicked with that too. So um, I think with that, um, you just have to balance those things with that. I think the the challenge with um, some of our nonverbal patients is that we need to come up with other ways to assess our treatment efficacy. And that was my biggest challenge when I was you know, confronted with, well, how do you know you're making a difference here? And it's like, well, I think that they're moving better or I seems like they're in less pain or seems like they're, you know, bending better. But unless you really try to put a number on that, it's, you know, kind of a guess. And so I guess that was my biggest first um, challenge was to really kind of put objective measures. How do we really measure pain in animals or how do we measure stiffness? And so that's really been kind of a primary area of my research interest is to really kind of subjectively or objectively measure our um, things that we see in our chiropractic patients. And so the first area that we did was looking at pressure algometry to really assess mechanical nociceptive thresholds or pain thresholds in the horses. Um, and we needed to, to, to develop baseline or standard values because if you don't know what the normal is, then how do you know if the horse is painful or not painful or got better to your treatment? So um, did some of that work and then also looked at some horses where we actually put little surgical pins um, bone pins into their back to, for another study measuring some spinal kinematics. And we could see that there was pain there and our pressure algometry was able to clearly diagnose that. So it's sensitive as far as being able to predict things there. And then from that, then we could say, well, let's do some chiropractic treatment or um, other types of therapies and say, you know, can we really change or reduce, reduce pain? Um, so that was our first thing that we looked at. Um, the next thing that we look at are Clinically, what I see is I see a lot of stiff horses. And so, well, how do you measure stiffness? Um, you know, from humans, we can do goniometers, put them on their head and do neck bending, or we can ask them to reach down and touch their toes. Um, horses being quadrupeds have some limitations with that, but we can sure do neck flexibility and measure how far their nose is from their elbow or from their stifle or from their knee um, in their back limb. And so, can measure some things that way. Uh, my interest was mostly looking at back stiffness, and so mostly just dorsal ventral motion or flexion extension type of movements to do that. That was one thing. Other researchers have looked at um, EMG to measure muscle activity before and after treatments. Um, currently, there's um, a movement to look a lot more at inertial sensors. Um, those things are measuring more overall body movement or activity monitors. Those are easy things to do. And so if you see a horse is moving a certain way before your treatment and afterwards he's doing more or before he's taken 5,000 steps and after your treatment he's taken 10,000 steps, then that gives you some numbers as far as doing things like that. Um, other kind of simple things that we've looked at is visual analog scales. Um, just owner's perception of, well, how is your horse today on a scale from zero to 10? Um, we've also developed some kind of functional questionnaires as far as how the horse is able to bend or use some spinal reflexes to to move um, or have kind of more assessment of kind of core stability or use goniometers um, to measure range of motion or um, flexible tape measures to measure like limb circumference as far as muscle development, things like that. So, so we've really interested in a lot of different tools to really apply to our chiropractic patients um, to see you know, are we making a difference here or not? Yeah, that's really fascinating. Um, one of the things I was um, just thinking about with the pressure algometry, uh, for some people that may not know exactly what that is, um, can you describe how how you went about doing that in, in the horses? Yeah. Uh, pressure algometry is just a little um, pressure gauge where you push on something and it measures some on a force that you're applying to that. 
And so it's been used in humans. Um, you push on a tender point or point where there's painful and you push down until the person says, ouch, or then you stop and you look at the number that says on the gauge. So it gives you an objective evaluation of that. And so it's helped me because um, some people may say, well, the horse has back pain. And then the next you know, specialist stand beside them says, well, no, the horse doesn't have back pain. It's like, well, which one of these people do you believe? And if we can put a number on it and both of them come up with about a 10, then we say, yeah, okay, this is below a threshold of normal horses. And yeah, this horse has back pain. So um, those are the challenges with that. And so we've gone through and measured horses from their nose all the way back to their tail and got standard values with that. We've looked at horses that are older horses versus younger horses, um, geldings versus mares as far as sex differences. Um, we've looked at different breeds um, because that's always one of the things. Well, Mike horses thin skinned, you know, like some of the Arabians might be more sensitive versus some of the draft horses might be thicker skinned or more stoic. And so we really can um, evaluate within that individual patient what their baseline is and um, compare one spot where we would say like it's a control group or control spot up over their withers. And then if they really do have like sacroiliac pain, then we can compare those two sites within that horse and say, in general, this is probably a more stoic horse, but he for sure has or she has more pain that she shows in different areas. So um, it's um, I find it a useful tool. Sometimes it's a steep learning curve for some people to do that as far as how much force you apply and um, how fast you apply that and things like that. But in my hands, I find it to be a very useful tool clinically and, and also from the research perspective. All right. Yeah, very good. And so there was another paper um, that was that you published on the effects of chiropractic massage and phenylbutazone on spinal mm -hmm. mechanical nociceptive thresholds. And uh, so, mm -hmm. for for our listeners, can you can you describe briefly what that study was about and and what you found? Yeah. Well, I guess again, um, the challenge with. Um, a lot of research or even, you know, the human research is that there's not well-controlled groups in those. It's like, how do you do a sham or a fake chiropractic treatment? And so with the horses, um, again, since they have little placebo effect, they don't know if they're really getting chiropractic care um, or if you're just, just giving them a massage with that. So that's really what we wanted to evaluate with some of the kind of the common modalities that are out there using chiropractic, using massage therapy, and then Phenylbutazone, which is a common non-steroidal that we use in horses for um, and, uh, inflammation and pain management. Those are typical things that we would treat a horse with back pain, acute back pain, to help that out. And then we had two different control groups in this study. One control group was that the horse um, were active in exercise, just like the other treatment group horses. Um, and then the inactive group was a group of horses that were brood mares or horses that were out of training. So we had an active and inactive control group with that. They didn't get any treatment during the seven days that we did the trial there. So um, just to evaluate different therapies and kind of where chiropractic fell in that spectrum, is chiropractic more effective than non steroidals or less effective? Um, because those are important recommendations for us. If we um, have a horse with back pain, we need to say, well, let's give it phenylbutazone because this is going to be, you know, 50% better than doing chiropractic or vice versa. Chiropractic might be more effective um, than using massage therapy. And those are things that, you know, we needed to understand or questions we had um, that we wanted to ask with this study. Okay, great. And so what what were the conclusions? What, what did you find in that study? Yeah, well, interesting. Um, from the um, chiropractic's um, perspective in that group of horses that we treated. That group of horses, um, we evaluated them on one, three, and seven days after treatment from a baseline. And one day afterwards, the chiropractic horses actually got more painful. Um, and then finally, on the third day and the seventh day, they um, were, showed the biggest increase as far as um, feeling better or reduced back pain with that. Um, so kind of a take-home message is if you're treating horses, don't call the owner the day after you treat them wait a week and then call them then because then that's really got to um, show you to be a better practitioner and have better effects with that. Um, the other part as far as from the massage, the massage group actually got better right away um, day one and they continued um, out to day seven, but they didn't um, improve as much um, as the chiropractic group on day seven. 
Um, the phenylbutazone and non-steroidal, interestingly, um, actually got worse or more painful um, for the first day after treatment. Um, and we didn't really see a positive effect of that until like a week later, which is really the opposite of what we would expect. Normally, if you take a non-steroidal or um, Advil or something like that for your pain, you would expect within 6 to 24 hours that you would feel better with that. And these horses actually got worse based on our measurements in this study here. So don't have a really good explanation why that happened um, to do that. Um, I've talked to several people and there may, you know, anti-inflammatory, this type of anti-inflammatory has both local and spinal cord effects. And so maybe there was some delayed onset about some of the neural changes or modifications and nociception within the spinal cord that took a little bit longer to kick in. Um, but other than that, I really can't answer that. But then in the two control groups that didn't get any treatment there, they had zero, basically zero change over the week period of time there. So it was gave us good confidence that the, the chiropractic, those horses didn't get better just because those horses were enrolled in the study or they got better just because of time um, being handled or whatever that way because the other horses that had the active and um, inactive control groups, um, they were handled similarly to that. So helped give us evidence that chiropractic was the more effective treatment there over the long period of time to do that. Um, as with any research, then the interesting question would be is, well, what if we did massage and chiropractic together? And then, you know, to hopefully um, blunt that negative effect from the chiropractic group one day afterwards and to rely more on the massage effects, helping out with that, and then maybe we'll get a synergistic effect and we can get a better treatment, you know, a week to two weeks down the line. Um, and then that would be the other study would be to do longer term studies rather than just a week, do it, you know, for a month or two months down the line and see if we can make a difference that way. Yeah, perfect. And we'll talk about one of those studies coming up uh, that you coupled um, laser therapy uh, with mm -hmm. hands-on chiropractic care. So uh, before we leave this theme though, I, I do want to ask you, as I found, as I was reading through this paper, uh, something really caught my interest, and that was that the effect of chiropractic and massage seemed to be greater for parts of the spine that were closer to the tail. Um, mm -hmm. Any any ideas why that would be? Yeah, I don't know for sure about that either. Um, just from our normal um, baseline nociceptive levels, um, their horses are most sensitive around their head and their neck, um, which. Normally, we would see that with people, too, around your face and your neck. Um, then they have higher thresholds, um, less painful through their trunk region, which is probably um, good for us if we're riding the horses, that they're less painful there normally. And then back toward their pelvis and their lumbar region, um, they have the highest levels in normal baseline values in that area. Um, some people come up with a theory of, and those are the same patterns we see in people, too. We have... Um, higher nociceptive thresholds in our butt, in our pelvis area, maybe why we can sit all day or sit for long periods of time without getting pain there versus, you know, if we sit on our head or neck, then we would get pain much sooner than that. Um, so I don't know for sure about that, but some people would say, well, there's longer nerve fibers that go from the lower back up to the head. And it's like, well, I really don't understand how that would change your nociceptive thresholds to do that if we're talking about milliseconds of changes that way. So the only thing that I can really come up with would be more kind of from a evolutionary perspective. And this is just my speculation. I have no, no evidence to support this, but um, when you watch animals, horses or prey animals um, being attacked by a predator, um, the predator oftentimes goes for their head and neck. And when you see that happen, those animals become um, paralyzed or succumb to that attack. Um, and so versus if they get attacked more from their hind end, from their pelvis or things like that, then they um, can sometimes run away or kick out or things there. And so I don't know if it's a you know, a evolutionary or developmental thing where they have more pain um, resistance in their hind end to help with them to protect themselves as they're running away versus if they got caught by their head and neck. I don't, I don't know that, but you know, I'm just kind of making things up as I understand them that way. But to me, that makes a little bit more sense than saying, well, the nerve fibers are, you know, 
three feet longer here and therefore that changes the pain sensation i, I have a hard time understanding that yeah oh that's that's really interesting uh just even considering some of those possibilities so thanks for going through that um so sure. next up if we could go through uh, you've done some research on the effects of mobilization versus manipulation and you describe those very well uh as we went through the introduction so i wonder uh there was a paper that you published in uh the american journal of veterinary research in 2007 i wonder if you could um go through this study that you did and you looked at mobilization and manipulation on the kinematics or the movement of the thoracolumbar region yeah yeah. Well, I guess that's always been my question, you know, again, from the prior study, we're saying, well, massage is massage different than chiropractic. And in that one study, we showed that there was a difference with that. And um, just talking with physical therapists um, or just doing spinal mobilization myself is sometimes just doing your motion palpation or your diagnostic perspective with that. Um, the horses seem to get better with that. Or as I'm teaching some of the chiropractic courses, we have students repetitively, you know, for three or four hours, sometimes mobilizing this horse. Um, and this horse was pretty painful in the morning, but after getting mobilized for three or four hours, the horse is less painful or less stiff in the afternoon. So it's like, wow, is mobilization having an effect here too? Just from that, it's not only given us diagnostic value, but it's also given us therapeutic value. So we really wanted to understand how is just doing spinal mobilization different um, from doing high-velocity, low-amplitude thrusts. And um, from prior work to do that, we had an evaluation of chiropractic treatment um, in natural occurring back pain and some of the induced pain from what we did from the spinal um, pins going into their back. And so in this study, we also wanted to evaluate that more of a, an acute pain setting, um, which may um, be more representative of humans with acute onset back pain rather than natural occurring back pain, um, which we did in the um, prior study with the chiropractic and the massage. So here, what we wanted to do was to look at our effect of mobilization in the painful sites that had the um, spinous process pins um, um, put in and then taken out. Um, so we followed these horses after that procedure. And then we also wanted to look at non-pain sites that were in front and behind those type of things or in front of those sites to, to see if there were differences there. Because looking through the human literature, it tends to suggest that mobilization might be more indicated in more acute settings um, versus chiropractic might be more effective in more chronic pain situations. So that was kind of another um, aspect or perspective we want to look for this study here. So from this study, we um, looked at stiffness, how the horse was able to move dorsal ventral mobility or flexion extension mobility. Um, we wanted to measure how much force we were applied because obviously if we're mobilizing with um, 10 pounds of force versus 30 or 40 pounds of force, then we're going to be able to move the horses back more. And then there might be some sort of maybe um, treatment effect with that or a dosage effect if I did a small force versus a high force um, to do that. But then we wanted to look at the amount of motion that those horses um, moved at those pain and non-pain sites. Again, thinking that, well, if you have pain in one site, then you're going to have more muscle guarding or more um, nociceptive responses. So you're not going to be able to put much force there. Um, and the horse will respond or step away from that treatment area. So we applied chiropractic treatment um, in one group of horses. And then the control group, we just did spinal mobilization. And we measured those before and after treatments. And then a week later, um, we gave them a washout period. And then we flipped those two groups. And then we did um, the treatment and the control groups in the opposite um, group of horses. More of a crossover study design to Use, the own, use their own horses as their controls to um, provide a little bit more statistical power for that. And um, what we found with that was um, the, the spinal mobilization really in this horse um, model was ineffective, which was kind of opposite of what we found. But the manipulation we did, the chiropractic treatment, really did increase spinal mobility about 15% and really allowed us to apply more forces to the, force to the horse's back. Um, which mean they were less painful, which may not have a lot of um, clinical relevance unless you think about treating a horse before 
where they were bucking and they couldn't have the owner on the horse's back, then after the treatment, they could apply uh, more force or weight of the rider, and then those horses weren't bucking or kicking after the treatment, which I've seen clinically to do that. So um, does make sense um, from the um, ability to increase flexibility and uh, ability to apply more force to the horse's back. Those are things we do see clinically. Well, that's terrific. Uh, so based upon this research, then uh, you were talking about, you know, coupling various therapies together, like perhaps mobilization and manipulation. Here you did them separately, but yes. I wonder if you hypothesize uh, going forward, if you did both, I mean, maybe you do manipulation and then and then do some mobilization or do them at the same time, as you said, the, um, maybe we get a bigger effect, but that's something yeah. that we haven't done yet or we don't have no, the knowledge well, of? Actually, actually, we have done that work in, a, ah. in another study here that I didn't okay. share with you. Um, okay. We actually did similar work with that. These were in horses that um, were in active performance, polo horses, so they were in active performance, so they didn't have any acute back pain other than normal kind of soreness that they had with their performance or ridden activity that they were doing. Um, we did this, followed them over three weeks um, period of time rather than just uh, the two weeks that we did earlier with that. And what we found, we did, again, um, a control group where we just did the mobilization and then we did the chiropractic right after that. And then we followed these horses for three weeks. And what we found was is that the spinal manipulation, the chiropractic treatment, had immediate effects we increased their spinal mobility about 20% and the amount of force that we could apply to the horses back about 20% too. However, what we found was that the spinal mobilization had delayed effects. So from week one to week two, the horses that got spinal mobilization actually had more flexibility during that period of time. So it really does help us understand that spinal manipulation has immediate effects, but the spinal mobilization has delayed effects. And so, to me, that's an interesting thing, more from a mechanistic perspective of, well, how do really manual therapies work? And so, there must be different mechanisms, um, neurologic mechanisms or mechanical, biomechanical mechanisms, um, different between spinal mobilization and manipulation. And in this study, both of them were effective. The manipulation just was effective immediately, within 10 minutes, and the mobilization was effective over time within five days or seven days. So interesting things to think about. Yeah, that's those are really interesting comparisons. So how do these forces compare with, with humans? Yeah, well, as, that's another thing kind of, you know, saying, well, can we really move a horse's back? And it's like, okay, yeah, we can move it. Um, but then are those force displacement profiles similar to but, than what's been reported in humans as far as with the high velocity, low amplitude thrust or with the spinal mobilization? And so we've measured some of those um, profiles with that. Um, our peak forces occur over a few hundred milliseconds um, related to speed. And that's the same um, type of force um, profile that we see with humans uh, with the chiropractic treatment with that. Um, however, the amplitudes or the height of those are very practitioner treatment specific because I can apply a very fast force um, with a low amplitude um, or I can provide a very high force with uh, a very high amplitude force um, over a longer period of time or a shorter period of time just depending on my speed with that. And we see that a lot of times with um, students that we're training is that the speed is oftentimes the things that the students lack. You know, we can teach them how to apply the amplitude um, with that, but oftentimes the speed is more of a psychomotor skill that they need to do with that. And so that's sometimes more of a challenging technique to teach them to do that. Um, in general, because of horses are bigger, larger mass, and larger inertia with that, um, then we do have to apply more force. Um, from those. And so some of our peak forces um, can be higher than people. If we applied those same forces in humans, we would probably hurt people. Um, so there is, you know, definite physicality to that as far as the practitioners that do that. But oftentimes, um, if you're using, you know, increased speed or being very fast with that, then we can have um, smaller sized chiropractors, um, animal chiropractors treating very big horses um, to be able to do that. Great, great. 
So you mentioned, uh, well, we've mentioned a couple times now about the possibility of combining various kinds of treatment. Mm-hmm. And in theme four, uh, you have done some clinical trials. Uh, one in particular we're going to talk about now. And this is in horses with acute versus chronic back pain. And in this study, you coupled laser therapy and chiropractic care on back pain and quarter horses. And I just want to say, this makes me think of when I bought my first laser to use on humans. Mm-hmm. I actually read a study very similar in humans um, from South Africa, the authors were, and they coupled um, laser therapy plus chiropractic uh, adjustments for neck pain. And what they found was a, a greater effect when they used both together. So I read that, and then I went out and bought a laser. Okay. <laughs> but uh, anyways, um, so in this in this study, um, can you tell us exactly what you did and, and what you found? Sure, yeah. Well, I did read a paper on laser therapy treatment in horses and went out and bought a laser. I guess my experience was is that I was trying to do chiropractic evaluation on some of these horses that had really acute back pain, in, and they wouldn't let me touch them. Or let me put in acupuncture needles. So it's like, well, if I'm called out to do chiropractic on a horse and I can't even touch them, then how am I going to do chiropractic? And so with that, then I was introduced to laser therapy. And um, a lot of these horses, after treating them with laser therapy for five, 10 minutes, then I was able to at least mobilize them a little bit or put a few acupuncture needles in there to kind of help break that pain cycle. So that's kind of my story or introduction to laser therapy. And then, you know, similar to what we had as far as understanding which one of these therapies is better, you know, if we have a horse that has acute back pain, um, should I be doing laser therapy on this horse or should I be doing chiropractic care or should I be doing mobilization or massage? And so with this study here is that um, we wanted to really compare the laser therapy, which in my hands seems to be much more effective for acute pain, muscle pain, myofascial pain versus chiropractic in my hand seems to be much more effective for chronic back pain or stiffness type of issues. So really wanted to compare those two therapies in this population here. And so, um, and these were all horses that were actively competing natural occurring back pain. And um, if you're not familiar with um, some of the competitions with the horses, sometimes they're um, ridden pretty hard. Sometimes they have several competitions during the day. Sometimes they're Training goes on long into the night, trying to get them fit or ready to go for their competition. So these horses tend to be pretty sore um, in certain areas or can even become lame if they're not um, accustomed to that high level of focused or intense type of treatment with that. So um, we looked at those horses and these horses were enrolled if they had back pain or stiffness. Um, and then we divided them into either a low-level laser therapy group, um, a chiropractic treatment group, or we did a combination of both of those. And then we applied a series of three treatments um, over three to seven days, which would kind of mimic what a typical clinical setting would be for humans that had acute back pain. You usually see them more frequently over a shorter period of time, and we do that similarly with horses there. Um, in this study, we really wanted to pull out all the stops as far as how to objectively or subjectively evaluate these horses in a clinical performance setting. And so um, we kind of grouped our outcome parameters into kind of more nociceptive or pain um, effects. And then we also looked at some functional effects as far as related to um, spinal reflexes or carrot stretches, things, you know, can you bend your back better or can you reach down to this area here? Um, we also use visual analog scales. The owners would report or scale their horses or score their horses back pain. And then the um, veterinary examiner would also do that to compare, well, you know, what's the perception from owners as far as their horses with back pain versus the veterinarian with back pain. And our um, findings were that owners really tend to underestimate back pain. Some owners don't realize that their horses have back pain. Um, and so I think that that's a, pretty important take-home message is that um, we need to have more people out there examining horses to educate owners about back pain and how to assess that. Most of the time, they don't um, really understand that unless they're getting bucked off the horse. Then it's like, okay, well, there must be a problem here. But um, these horses were obviously in active competition and not bucking, but they were still having some significant pain there. So 
other kind of more routine spinal exam things we were looking for was back pain, muscle hypertonicity, and stiffness to do that. Um, and we also did pressure algometry to measure objectively nociceptive thresholds here. Um, so the results then, as we found that the laser therapy um, with the protocols on the wavelength and the treatment time that we did in this study did produce significant reductions in back pain. Um, also um, caused some muscle relaxation and improved um, trunk stiffness or flexibility or improved trunk flexibility or reduced stiffness. So um, seemed to have significant effects um, in this population of horses. Um, the combined therapy had similar effects with that um, and also did have a little bit of effect on reducing the severity of the muscle spasms and the stiffness there with that. Chiropractic treatment by itself did not produce any significant changes in the back pain um, or the muscle stiffness or the uh, or the muscle hypertonicity or the trunk stiffness. However, it did have more functional effects from some of the spinal reflexes where we ask them to do belly lifts or um, uh, other kind of what we call butt tucks or pelvic flexion, lumbosacral flexion tests. So interestingly, didn't have any nociceptive effects, but had more kind of what we consider tests of core stability in that area. So interesting effects there with that. Um, and I think the bottom line would be is that I would after the study here, apply laser therapy or combine laser therapy with maybe more spinal mobilization, more soft tissue techniques um, until we got them out of that acute pain. And then I would step in probably with more aggressive stretching or chiropractic treatment at that time. Hmm, very good. I like that uh, order of operations uh, that's informed by research. Very nice. Yeah. Well, and I think that that's what we've seen clinically, too, is that we have some of these horses that have severe neck pain or what we call hyperalgesia. They just have severe wind-up all over in their body, um, central sensitization type of things. And um, so we always start off with maybe non-steroidals um, if it's acute back pain, but then we resort to acupuncture, chiropractic, stretching. Um, if things aren't helping there, then we're going to step up and probably do a little bit of shockwave therapy help out with that. And if those things aren't working, then we're going to step up and do corticosteroid injections, um, interarticular to help out that way. So we do have a progression of, of treatment modalities that we use um, clinically. We just don't have good research to support that um, to say which one we should use at one stage or another. Um, and I guess, you know, that's where we need to head in the future as far as understanding when to use these and how to use these in, in combination or not. Great. Well, I want to probe your mind a little bit further about um, when uh, someone should have their horse looked at as far as uh, for chiropractic care in particular. Um, I know just like with humans, uh, some chiropractors get assessed and treated without symptoms. Others mm -hmm. do have signs and symptoms. I'm just curious what your thoughts are for when horses uh, might need chiropractic care uh, do they need to have symptoms or or not? Obviously, we're getting results or you're getting results uh, when there's no symptoms. So just just curious because in the yeah. human world, it, it's a big question, you know, when should someone go to a chiropractor? Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, there's kind of a more flippant response, you know, as far as, you know, from D.D. Palmer or V.J. Palmer is if you have a vertebrae or vertebral column, then you need chiropractic care. And, yeah, okay, I understand that, and that's probably part of that too. But um, I don't think chiropractic is the end-all for all spinal issues or, you know, performance issues that you might have. But um, I've treated horses both ways. I've treated horses clinically that come in with severe signs of back pain that the owners say, well, he's bucking me off or he's not doing his job or he can't jump like he did or um, he can't bend that barrel like he did before. And so there's obviously clinical complaints, chief complaints, why the owner come in and then we can treat those. Most of the time we diagnose those. We really understand, is this more of an articular issue? Is this more of a soft tissue um, muscle myofascial issue? Or is this more of a neurologic component to that? So um, I'm a strong believer in our treatment is only as good as our diagnosis. And so, um, in those cases that do present with obvious clinical signs, then we need to pursue our diagnosis as best as we can to figure out, is that due to impinged spinous processes in the back, or is it due to more of a um, muscle 
uh, metabolism um, deficiency or glycogen storage disease because there's lots of myopathies that are out there that versus present with back pain um, to do that. And so those are things, again, that we need to think about from that area to do that. Um, and then the other side or the flip side is, is, you know, as far as the preventative or the um, maintenance type of chiropractic care. And um, I do routinely see horses on a periodic basis, sometimes, you know, every other week or once a month or every six months, we just go out and um, evaluate those horses and um, treat them as I see needed, um, you know, from a stiffness or a pain perspective um, or a myofascial, you know, hypertonicity perspective, even though the owner may not have specific complaints at that time. And I think that um, it's important for all animals um, to have evaluation and then periodic treatments with that, especially for horses, because we usually ridden, have some rider on their back. And if you're competing, I think there's good evidence from the human side that any of our elite human athletes need some sort of preventative care for them to do their job or some sort of cross training and things like that. And our equine athletes are um, superior at times to some of our human athlete endeavors um, for amount of distance that they run or the height that they run or the um, speeds that they run, um, that they need all the care that they can get to. And if that's chiropractic care or if that's proper fitting saddle or proper hoof care or proper nutrition, um, I think all of those are very important for um, maintaining that athletic um, ability or even helping some of those geriatric animals that, you know, have chronic arthritis, chronic stiffness and pain. Um, yeah, they have that. It's not ever going to get better, but we need to provide some care for quality of life issues. And I think chiropractic is one of those tools that we can definitely step in and, and help out with quality of life issues in some of those geriatric patients, too. Great. Really, really enjoyed that answer. Thank you. Uh, a goal of this podcast series is to motivate and assist practitioners and students alike to pursue research careers in chiropractic science. And in this case, uh, it could be human or animal. Um, could you give us any advice to aspiring chiropractors uh, or vets or students who wish to become scientists? Yeah, well, I guess um, different people have different motivations for going into research. Um, some of those might be personal reasons. You know, maybe you're, you had somebody in your family that, you know, died of cancer or um, had a chronic medical, you know, disease or disorder. And, you know, you have a strong tie to not see anybody else suffer that. And so that would be your motivation to get into research to understand or help treat some of those chronic um, unremitting type of diseases to do that. Other people, kind of like myself, are lifelong learners. I just want to keep learning and learning. Um, if I'm not learning, I feel like I'm stagnating or kind of falling behind here. So I'm always interested in whatever is new and exciting out there or trying to create ways, again, maybe to better objectively measure things or come up with better treatment protocols or figuring out for this individual patient, this is the standard of care that we should be providing here. Um, so different people have different motivations to do that. I guess the, the challenge I see with that oftentimes is opportunity. Um, some people, because of their training or qualifications, may not be able to meet um, the requirements to get into some of those programs. Um, the other thing is oftentimes I find very, very frustrating is just the lack of funding um, to pursue, you know, those things that you would like to test or like to do with that. So I guess the bottom line would be is, you know, if you want to make a difference in people or animals' lives, then research is the only place where you can really objectively do that to see, you know, what it works, what doesn't work, what is true, what's repeatable to do that, what's clinically effective um, to help push new frontiers and push the boundaries of knowledge to improve health and wellness in animals and in human lives. If, if that's a calling that you want to do, then obviously research is the only place that's um, really going to help you to be able to meet those goals or aspirations that you might have. Oh, thank you so much. And uh, Dr. Hostler, it's, it's been a great privilege to be able to interview you today. I've learned a lot. I know people that are going to be listening will learn a lot as well. And 
some of the, some of those points, uh, I, th- I think I'm going to have to listen to this several times to really <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> grasp, uh, grasp everything. But uh, thank you so much for coming on. You're welcome very much to be here. And thank you for the offer to uh, contribute and share a little bit of um, information today. Appreciate that. Great. Thanks for listening to this episode of Chiropractic Science with my guest, Dr. Kevin Hostler. Please stay tuned for more great episodes coming up.